Well, Popper, like players that circle games on the calendar, knowing that it's a rivalry or a little bit of a chance for payback, whatever, this is, this is the episode of OHL stories that we've had circled on the calendar. We released it deliberately this week because it's going into Christmas, and you might want to listen to it more than once. It's also like a Christmas present with the winningest coach in the Ontario Hockey League, in, in the history of the league, and a guy whose name is synonymous with the league, legend, suits him perfectly, uh, Brian Kilray, our guest this week. I think we're good. Yeah, I think <laughs> we shut down the podcast. We'll, <laughs> we'll take the year off, just like the OHL will. Um, hey. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, well, fair. Uh, I normally sometimes like to uh, – copy or borrow um uh, the way uh spit and chicklets intros their guests running down some of their credentials and whatnot i we couldn't do that for killer i did it a little bit but we didn't have enough time to list off all of the credentials for a guy like brian kilray um i uh, we talk about it in the podcast that um i called him in as a college student for an interview and got his house number and he talked to me at length. I was probably a terrible interviewer. Was, he probably thought it was a podcast. It was just for a web story, <laughs> but I think it went on about 40 minutes and uh, he turned someone at the door away uh, during the conversation. And that to me, I was just like, this guy's turning someone at the door away for some college kid. He had no idea who I was, um, but just a guy that's been synonymous with hockey um, synonymous with the OHL has done so much for so many people. And um, you talk to many of his players, they talk about more the, the effect he had on them as people more so than the effect he had on them as hockey players. And I think that says more about Brian Kilroy than you need to hear. Yeah. He uh, turned a lot of uh, boys into men in, in the good way, not like talking, you know, rough and tumble this, although he liked that style of game, but players matured under him. He took their growth and development very seriously as a coach in this league. And he's definitely got some stories to share from the decades, the decades that he was involved in, and remains involved Uh, in this game to this day. So before we get to the Kilray stories, uh, I guess the big story in junior hockey right now, and you touched on one that nobody really wants to talk about. February 4th is still the date the Ontario Hockey League has circled on the calendar for a potential start. Certainly it could still be perceived as optimistic, but what's happening in the league right now across the Canadian Hockey League is, of course, the, the roster for Team Canada. No Shane Wright, no Donovan Sobrango, near and dear to the hearts of Kitchener Rangers fans, obviously. Thomas Harley and uh, Jamie Drysdale make it from the OHL on D. Nonetheless, uh, how surprised are you that Shane Wright does not make this team? Not surprised at all. Um, Really not. You look at uh, projected line combinations and such, and they have like Phil Tomasino on the fifth line. This guy's going to play in the National Hockey League next year. Like (laughs) my one buddy messaged me um, asking what I thought of uh, the World Juniors and what I was expecting. And look at their forwards. Like it's an absolute wagon of a team um, that I I don't know much about their goaltending. I'm not going to pretend I do, um, considering both OHL goalies got sent home. 
but like this is a team that could put up eight goals a game. There's just so much offense. A guy like Cole Perfetti's on like their fourth line projected. Like, what are you talking about? This is one of the best players in his like in the in the world right now of his age group. And a fourth line. Like it's just you got a guy like Kirby Doc that's just going to dominate the tournament coming from Chicago. I think uh I'm not surprised that Shane didn't make the team. It would have been great to see him, but you gotta remember. He, this is his draft year coming up, <laughs> like his normal draft year. It's it's crazy yeah. to think. Not that, NHL draft, you know, though. Don't, no, don't get confused. Got, the kid's going to be 16, yeah. 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 So I think it's it, it's probably a great experience for him and good for Hockey Canada to give him a look to see uh, where he rates amongst those players. And you're talking about a 16-year-old during those camps would have been going up against a guy like Kirby Doc, who played in the National Hockey League this year. Like, it's great experience for a guy like Shane Wright. Hockey Canada obviously wants him there, and he's a special talent, but I'm not shocked in any way um, to think that the exceptional player status, Shane Wright, doesn't make the team. And for fans of the Ontario Hockey League and Shane Wright, if you're throwing your hands up in the air wondering, oh, my God, what's Hockey Canada thinking? Shane Wright will play for Team Canada. at some, Like, let's not get our knickers too knotted. Yeah. <laughs> Might be the top line center. Might be. Uh, on that note, I know fans are, are pretty excited, as, as they always are for this tournament, and maybe even more so this year because it provides that sense of normalcy at Christmas time that we're all looking for as we, we get that glimmer of hope, that, that glimmer of light on the horizon that is a COVID-19 vaccine. But the bottom line here, Popper, is there's an element of risk, fans or no fans, that this tournament is even happening in Alberta right now yeah um it's i often say that it's my favorite time of the year the world junior tournament um i've always loved it um but i just when i think about the tournament this year the only question that comes to mind is why why oh i have the answer what yeah exactly my yeah it's it's just like you saw it with team canada they're they're coming just from different provinces in our own country and they had cases. They had to quarantine again. Think about, I can't remember who I was listening to, but they brought up Thomas Harley. Here's a guy that leaves Mississauga this year, goes out to Edmonton, is in the bubble with Dallas. So he has to quarantine for two weeks before he goes into the bubble, then goes into the bubble, spends that much time away from family and friends. Season's over for Dallas. He goes back down to the States with a quarantined, coming back up to go to this camp, quarantines for two weeks, then goes into camp. Then they have the cases back into a hotel room for two weeks, and now he goes back into a bubble. The, like I, I hope, and I'm sure Hockey Canada does, but I hope they have about five psychiatrists on speed dial because the amount of stress mentally and the, I can't imagine – what a guy like Thomas Harley is going through, but that goes for everybody. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. And I worry about these players, mental health going through all that. It's hard enough on everybody that's going through it around the world that has family and friends that are in their bubble or people they live with. These are like, we I watched the video of the players coming out of the hotel room and (laughs) Jamie Drysdale walks outside and he goes, Oh, this is so nice. Just fresh air. I haven't had fresh air because the hotel room, their windows don't open and stuff. Like it just, I don't understand why you see videos of, I think it was Russia and Switzerland coming over on the same plane. Um, It's just, there's going to be, I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. 
when the NHL started their bubble, I thought this isn't going to work. They did a fantastic job, no cases in that bubble, but to bring all these youngsters in during a national pandemic, I think there's certain things we can press pause on. And I, I'm of the belief that this is one of those things that maybe just shouldn't be happening. I think you make a great point on the mental health. And if I'm being brutally honest, I'm less concerned about these guys than I am about the general population. And I say that because not only do they have medical staffs and organizations looking out for them, but also on the other side of this, and there will be another side of this, they've got a lot to look forward to, a lot to get back into that will help them reset mentally and and feel quote unquote normal. Whereas I think for some who at any given age that this is just has been life for nine months, will be life for another nine, this 18 months all of a sudden turns into something that feels permanent or becomes permanent. These guys, they're going to, they're going to play the game again and the game's going to help them grow and develop. And it gives them that purpose or that job or that, that routine that they crave. But on the point of the bubble too, I, I I heard through the grapevine that a lot of the players in the NHL, once they got eliminated this past season, couldn't wait. Like they were almost happy because they're like, they hated it. Right. We, how we can't keep playing video games all day. Like we need to go back to our, we'll quarantine for two weeks, but we'll be with our family. We'll be back in our home communities, this, that, and the other thing. Right. So that, that Jamie Drysdale example is a perfect one. Just take that deep lung full of air that you don't feel like you can get. Right. I, I can't imagine. And then like, not only you go out to camp and then they have some cases. So you have to quarantine. And then for some of those kids right away, they get sent home because they're unfit to play. And then, so the, that, that whole experience is ruined right away after quarantining a guy like Donovan Sobrango gets a couple more practices in or a scrimmage or whatever. And then he gets sent home. So now he's got to like, does he have to quarantine when he gets back to his home here in Waterloo region, another two weeks? Of course, he's around his family, but still, I just, you know, they had the bike set up um, in the in their hotel rooms, and you know, they I, I saw uh, Max, the uh, lead singer of um, Hamilton Band, uh, the Arkells. The Arkells, yeah, he, yeah. He he put on a private concert for them on Zoom, but you know, as much as these kids love their video games and sitting in a hotel playing video games may not seem that bad for a couple days, but for fourteen days, man, you, it takes its toll on you. Look, it sounds it'd be tough for a couple hours for me. Like, there's only so much you can you, think. Think of you and me on the road, seriously. And mm-hmm. as as glamorous as it sounds, oh yeah, I'm gonna spend a couple of days in a hotel. Uh, how much time after we get up do we actually spend in that hotel room? Right. I you know, know like yeah, yeah. Like we get out, stretch the legs. There might be a little bit of time in the afternoon with a newspaper and preparing for the game that night, but. You don't want to stay cooped up in a hotel in a city that's not your hometown. No, and I think taking the politics out of it, there's some people who don't believe what others are saying about this virus, but we still don't know the long-term effects of it. And if these players, if a couple players get it, and, you know, maybe it cuts their career short, is it really worth it? Like maybe they have trouble getting their lung capacity back up to where it needs to be. Your cardiovascular training to be a National Hockey League player needs to be at the top level. And maybe some of these players can't do it. Is it really worth it? That's what I don't get. Of course, it's the money aspect. The, the double IHF wanting that, that, uh, the, the money coming from the tournament. I just don't – I think the, the risk outweighs the benefit 
by far for me. And I'm, I may be of the minority, and I'm sure it's easy for some fans and, and watchers of the game to just say, oh, just do it. You know, they'll set up the bubble and it'll work. And maybe it will. But I just, I'm, I'm still skeptical of it. Yeah, and it's, it's easier to say when you're not directly involved, well, what's the point? I mean, obviously, money aside, there are still factors at play with players and development. And, and we, we, have to, we have to remember, as much as we talk about sports being a business, particularly around the, the money that's involved now, but this is an industry. And, and it's, a, it's a pretty important one when you consider the number of people sports, I use in quotes here, employs. Right, like this is a key part of our economy in in North America globally. So you have to keep that in mind as well. For a couple of guys who don't really have a ton of skin in the game, like we make some beer money from traveling around broadcasting OHL games, but we're like the smallest of the fit. We're the minnows in this great big sea. Shout out Alan Doyle of sports as an industry. So easier for us to say than it is for those involved in it to keep that industry going. For sure. And uh, I agree, but I just, uh, eventually money only goes so far, man. You know, I'm with I you, know. brother. I listen. Um, if, I, if we talked about Shane Wright not making the team, if you're the New York Rangers, would you have let Alexis Lafreniere go? Protect your prized horse, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah, that for sure. Any other year, maybe they're like, yeah, sure. Go play, you know, get, stay in game shape, you know, be in game scenarios. But for a guy that's taken a beating like he did in the Quebec league and, you know, you don't want him to get hurt or, and then what if he gets sick? Then all of a sudden you never know if he has underlying health issues. I'm sure he's in tip top shape, but you never know with the body and you never know with uh, a, a virus like this that we don't really know that much about still nine months later. Um, I'm, if I'm the Rangers, not a chance. Like they came down to the last minute saying no, but that, that decision was made weeks before that. Like, the New York Rangers select Alexis Lafreniere and know he will not be going to the World Junior Tournament. That's when that decision was made. I'm with you 100%. As exhausting as this has all been, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm following the rules. I'm going to keep it quiet at Christmas time, whatever. I, and I hope, I really do. I, I know you, you made the comment earlier, and, and you're probably right. I mean, February 4th, optimistic, but Damn, mm-hmm. if I'm not really, really, really hoping that we've got something by way of actual games by then. I, I'm i right with you, and not just because I love the game, because I want some, sorm- some form of normalcy back in my life. Um, it, it's tough for us. I can imagine what it's like for the players, especially like a Donovan Sobrango. And that draft class that just got drafted doesn't really know what's going on. And then when's about, the season starting? And blah, it's, it's a lot, man. How about the guys that would be in their draft? Like they should be coming into the Christmas break of their draft year. Yeah. Right. Second year guys in the, in the Canadian hockey league, right. Should yeah. be the, the rankings and their, their hopes for the second half. And anyway, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Francesco Pinelli of the Rangers should have probably 25 talks by now. <laughs> Why you gotta be that way? <laughs> Well, I'm just saying. He should. You're right. He should. He, he, like he's dest- whether it starts February 4th or not, he was destined for a breakout season. He was a phenomenal rookie. And you, the minute you saw him, you were like, okay, this is a stud. Like He just had everything, the skating, the shot, the, the physical aspect. A guy like that, I was so excited to see Declan McDonald taking that next step. Even a guy like Simon Motu to get you know, regular playing time throughout the full second year of his career, we saw glimmers of excellence from him. Um, but 
it's, uh, it, it is what it is. I have no idea how it's going to go. I get asked all the time because of being in this position, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen to these players? Are they going to uh, double up on the draft? Are you going to get an extra year of eligibility? If the season doesn't happen, is it just a wash? Uh, the league and David Branch have some tough decisions to make. And I don't even know if it's their decision, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I get the same questions. I have the same non-answers because it goes way above our pay grade. Uh, the bottom line is the leagues will do it when it's safe. And if that's not this year, then we'll do it next year when it's safe. And that's fine, you know, whatever, or next season. It should be the fall of 2021 is looking like the most optimistic time of all times right now. So we can all hold out hope for that. Could you envision though, like if, if it goes February 4th, no fans, can you envision certain teams around the Ontario hockey league being able to make it work with no fans? No, I, I guarantee you it can't. It would have to have somebody with a lot of money or some other league. Hello, Gary Bettman with a lot of money to prop it up. I, this, this, the Ontario hockey league doesn't go without fans. I don't of course, think. And, and I've heard talk of them looking to the NHL for some subsidies, looking to both provincial and federal government for subsidies. But then if that happens, is the government going to give subsidies to the WHL and the Q, which is already trying to get a season underway? If the National Hockey League comes up with some money, are they then going to help uh, the leagues out of the states? What about the European leagues? All it's just, it's a mess right now. And that, that there's so many things that need to fall in line. That is the main reason why I am beyond skeptical of a February 4th start. I would absolutely love it. And I will happily eat crow if we are on the road February 4th. I will happily drink bad media room coffee if we get the opportunity. However, hey, if, if, if we get the opportunity, I will happily have a Molson export in a hotel somewhere because that was Brian Kilray's drink of choice. I'm sure he had one or two Molson exports after the lengthy interview we put him through. Well played, sir. Way to get the product placement in where it belongs. And that ties into the big one. This is the last one before Christmas. It's long enough to maybe take in two parts or listen to multiple times gather the family around the christmas tree and listen to the winningest coach in ohl history help fill the void between games as brian kilray joins us on ohl stories it's a killer interview you're terrible i read his book this weekend for the second time in anticipation of this interview the book they call me killer i'm going to take in bringing up him i'm going to take a paragraph out of the book and introducing him. Brian Kilray played professional hockey for 15 years, winning three Calder Cups and scoring the first goal in the history of the Los Angeles Kings. He coached the Ottawa 67s for 32 years, winning a record 1,193 games, two Memorial Cups, and four Canadian Hockey League Coaches of the Year. Oh, yeah, that award is now named after Brian Killer. Killer, thanks a lot for joining us. This is awesome. Well, it's my pleasure, guys. So, Brian, that that book was written 10 years ago. What have you been up since then? Well, uh, because uh, there's no hockey this year, it makes it a little difficult. But uh, since I retired, I've uh, the 67s, I still go to the games, and uh, James Boyd looks after the team, and it's in good hands. So uh, if I just scouted along with Patty Higgins and Bert O'Brien, and... Um, 
I, I enjoy it. I enjoy going to the tournaments. I enjoy going to the games in Ottawa, seeing the kids come up that are going to be stars, hopefully, and on to the National League. So I, I've tried to keep myself busy in the winter with scouting and the hockey and the summer with golf. Since we were talking about the hands that the team is in right now under James Boyd, uh, no question the past two seasons have been exceptional in Ottawa. And, and I wonder, Brian, how, how disappointing it was to have this past season. Obviously, there's nothing we can do about COVID-19, but uh, boy, oh boy, the 67s were loaded for bear. And do you look at this as a season that what could have been perhaps? Well, I think James put together two teams in a row that could have won uh, Memorial Cup. They were challengers, and that's uh, the best way to have it. But as it turned out, uh, you know, two years ago when uh, he made the trade for the best goaltender in junior hockey and to have him go down with an injury, luckily we had a little guy by the name of Andre come in, and it was no fault of his that we didn't go on. It's just I think we lost a little bit of confidence. And then last year it was COVID, and again we were we were set for a good run, and uh, who knows what. But I know there's other teams that felt maybe they could have won it too, and so disappointing in one way, but we do know that James did everything he could to put the best team on the ice, and uh, he he deserves a lot of credit for some of the astute trades he made in bringing us different players that contri- contributed. Keller, it's been over a decade since you stepped away from behind the bench and a little while since you stepped away from being general manager. Do you, walking into the Civic Center, do you, do you still get the same feelings that you did back in the day? Well, no, I, I used to get the feeling it was excitement and nervousness. It didn't matter how many years I had coached or how old I was. I still got a little bit nervous for games, and I used to go down around 4.30 uh, for a 7.30 game and just sit by myself. I enjoyed a cigar and just think of uh, the line matchups and the players and everything else. But I wasn't really... Uh, big on line matching uh, I like to think that when I put a uh, line on the ice or a player on the ice uh, they were good enough to be there and so uh, it didn't matter who they were playing against Those cigars, Killer, are synonymous with your name and your coaching career Was there a time that you could light up one of those stogies on the bus? Oh yes, there was <laughs> and uh, before we had a driver that well, a couple of drivers that smoked and they didn't mind. I used to always ask them, do you mind? And they'd open their little vent window because they smoked cigarettes. And uh, a lot of the smoke would go out the window. But every once in a while, you know, one of the players would come up and say, that smoke is really, uh, I don't like it or it stinks. And my answer was, uh, what team do you want to go to that doesn't smoke? <laughs> <laughs> And so they'd go back to their seat, and uh, they put up with me, put it that way. That was the same with being honest with my music. I was a, a great Anne Murray fan, and I used to have my own machine, and I just played Anne Murray, whether it was from here to Kitchener or here to Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, that's uh, one way it was uh, over 300 miles, one way it was 500, but it was Anne Murray and cigars. 
there's not many players that you can talk to that played under a killer that don't bring up Anne Marie. Where did the love of Anne Marie come from? Well, I just enjoyed. I enjoyed. I, I had the opportunity to meet her later on in life, but I always just liked her songs, her and uh, the way she came across as just a a natural person. And so when I think of the great Canadians that I was lucky enough to uh, admire and to meet, Anne Murray's one of them, Don Cherry, Bobby Orr, you know. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get into some of those names for sure. But it's interesting, Brian, in listening to you say, you know, it was Cigars and Anne Murray, and the players essentially uh, had to deal with that because that's what the coach was saying. What was, what was expected of the players who competed for you? Well, once we picked a team, I wasn't a fuel check back, and I'm sure you could or did. I didn't make a lot of trades. Every once in a while, we'd make a trade. Certainly, if I could improve the club, I would. But I like to think that the players that we picked at the start and went through some of the tough practices and and learning and growing up, that um, if they could put up with me at the start, then I could certainly go along with them. So when you when I look back, I, like I said, I didn't make a lot of trades, but when I did. It was for the sole purpose of maybe that one or two players that would make a difference in winning and losing. Brian, I want to go back a bit. You mentioned those bus drivers and uh, how they'd roll down the window. Our bus driver with the Kitchener Rangers this year, we nicknamed him Moose after a close call up in Sault Ste. Marie um, where there was a couple of moose crossing the road. What was the most dangerous bus trip you ever experienced? Well, we had two that the bus driver passed out. And um, we were coming from an exhibition game in Belleville, and all of a sudden we're going along. And um, then the stones started hitting the undercarriage, and I said to the bus driver, is there something wrong with the bus? Because we were starting to veer off the road. And he said, no, me. With that, he just passed out. So I had to jump up quick, and uh, luckily he wasn't hurt, but I just flung him out of the seat, and I, I had used to drive truck in the summer, so I got in behind the wheel, and we were going down a little bit of an embankment on the 401, and I, I know from truck driving experience, you can't just jerk the wheel, you have to just sort of gradually turn it, and we were going to a tree line, and I did, I got the bus turned so that we didn't tip, and got it stopped, and everyone got out, now naturally the bus was sort of stuck there. They had to get us another bus. So that was the first time. And then uh, the bus driver, they put him in the hospital. And about a month later, uh, he got out and he said he was all right. And so as it turned out, we were on our way up to play a game in North Bay. And um, we had just left eating in Pembroke and we're going along. And Jeff Hunt was sitting beside me with his brother, Alec. And all of a sudden, the same thing. What's wrong? And he, there, he, our bus driver passed out. But this time, instead of going to the right and off the road, he was going up to that two-lane highway into the other lane. And luckily, there was nothing coming for a hundred yards. And Jeff got up quick, and but he couldn't move the bus driver at the time. Uh, I was doing the lineup. Otherwise, I would have been the same scenario. But as it turned out. 
Jeff was steering the bus, and I got my I got on the floorboard and got my foot on the brake and. Boy, it's tough with that brake pedal, I'll tell you, with a hand. But anyway, we got the bus stopped, and um, they were the two uh, frightening experiences that I had on the bus. And both times we were uh, lucky that the worst thing that happened was nothing. <laughs> so a couple of moose doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> no, I mean, moose, you would have been fine. He would have caved in the front, but he might have stopped you. Those moose would have stopped you, but there would have been no danger to your the passengers, which are players and uh, everyone else included. So, but when a bus is going on the wrong side of the road and the other one going down a little bit of an incline, they're the ones that you think back on and how lucky we are. You mentioned that first one, uh, coming home from an exhibition game in Belleville. Obviously, yep. the Bulls no longer in the league. Cornwall, you would have seen come and go. Uh, North Bay is gone and then back again. I mean, Brantford Alexanders were there at one time. Are there teams or, or markets, Brian, that you think should have a return of junior hockey? Well, you, you get selfish because I always was an Ottawa 67 coach, manager, and now a fan. Uh, I'd love to see Belleville back in. I'd love to see Cornwall back in. It would shorten our team's play. Obviously, it would cut expenses, but it would certainly be better for the kids uh, going to school where the one-hour or two-and-a-half-hour trip instead of going to your closest rival, which is on the other side of Toronto now because of the two uh, teams that are no longer in a vision. So, yeah, I would, uh, I, I miss them, and I wish they were both back. But uh, with the Senators taking over Belleville and now doing that renovation, uh, I was always hoping it would fail and they would come back in to our league. But obviously, that isn't going to happen. And Cornwall, uh, I just felt bad. I think it was Willie Wise that moved the team up uh, to Newmarket when they went away. And that was tough because uh, there we had uh, a close rival, one hour great rivalry. And when I think back to Orville, uh, Overtesse and Gordy Wood there, they were great friends of mine and it was a good visit as well. Killer, that Belleville-Ottawa rivalry is something um, that m- many new fans of the league don't know about. If someone were to ask you about that rivalry in your heyday, how would you explain it? Well, I, I would say it was uh, fierce. I mean, uh, Larry Mavity was there, you know, to start when uh, the Bulls were eliminated or put into our league uh, with Doc Vaughn. And right away, he put up a real tough team to play against. And uh, if to get your two points from Bevel, you had to certainly earn it and it was just a great place to play and it was a a a big rink and the fans were good and uh it was um like i mean doc vaughn trusted uh, larry mavity and larry mavity coming from bevel he wanted to uh, put the best team on the ice so he came close a couple times to winning it but as a rivalry uh, it was great, but it was always good to see him because I had played pro with Larry and I knew what a competitor he was. 
You mentioned Larry's name, and we still get to see him on occasion when we're up Kingston Way. Uh, and he's one of these names, Brian, that's also synonymous with the game of junior hockey. You would have coached against the McQueens, the Templetons, the LaForges. I mean, we could go on and on. Was there was there a coach that you really loved matching up against in your career? Well, I don't know if uh, matching up, but I mean, uh, I always enjoyed when I would play against uh, Bert Templeton, whether he was in Hamilton before North Bay or Larry Mavity, because you knew that they would do anything to win, the same as I would do anything to win. But uh, the thing was, at the end of the game, yeah, we'd go and have a beer together and laugh laugh about who won or lost, and uh, then it was wait till the next game and hope you could do something about it. But uh, yeah, it was friendship, and there was a lot of good friends and. Uh, I remember different people in Kitchener. There was Joe McDonnell, who uh, I had great respect for. And when he was there for years, I really enjoyed going to Kitchener and seeing Joe still talk to him. And he was one of the good guys. Uh, You make a trade with uh, Joe McDonnell, Bert Templeton, Larry Mavity, Hunter, Tessier. They were names. You make a trade, it was it was done. You didn't have to worry about them changing their mind or going seeing if they could better the deal. You mentioned making trades, and you didn't make many of them, Brian. Um, but I know loyalty and your word means a lot to you. Uh, there's a there's a great story in your book about a player who came to you and was um, unhappy about his billets, and you found another another place for him to live. Do you recall that? Yes, I do. I won't. I wouldn't mention his name because no, he was a not. good kid. But um, uh, it was one of my good. It was somebody that had been with me for a few years, and uh, she had a, a girl that was growing up. And as it turned out, he said she knows my business. And I said, well, "What business do you have that you have to worry about a girl in your class?" I said. So anyway, as it turned out, uh, the final stepping stone was um, we were playing a game in Hamilton that night and as it turned out after the game Don Cherry had come down to see me and so I was away from the dressing room waiting until everybody was ready to get in the bus and then I would have said goodbye to Don and got on well he came over and interrupted a conversation with Don and I and he said I hope you haven't forgot about that uh, move and that was uh, that was the last straw. Uh, the move came the next day when I called and uh, asked the team. And by the way, um, I used to have a couple of small rules that, uh, and I used to go and visit every kid. By the way, I'll finish that rule bit. Uh, I used to go to everybody and say to them, uh, "I have very few rules. I'm pretty lenient on curfews because kids have to grow up and have fun." But I said, I don't allow long hair, beards or mustaches, uh, and or jewelry. And so anyway, this one kid who who I had caught twice now with earrings on, and I said, I don't re- really have to tell somebody twice about getting rid of that earring. So when it turned out the next day when I made the trade, I called him in, and I said, by the way, um, I've got that new landlady for you, and but... She lives in Windsor, and um, they don't mind if you wear earrings. So that was my parting (laughs) shot, and he left. 
And, uh, but the one thing I wanted to say was ever since I took over first year, I went and visited everyone we ever drafted, whether it was in Wawa, Thunder Bay, or even the States. I visited them all to let them know just what to expect when they come to Ottawa. And um, because when kids come to your camp, you don't really have a lot of time to talk to parents and let them understand what's going to happen should they make the team or not make the team. So I try to cover that by going to visit them before training camp so they know what to expect when they came to camp. Some of these things, Brian, some people might say are are the most difficult parts, let's say that, of of coaching and managing in junior hockey because you're dealing with teenagers as opposed to professional athletes who are adults. What was it about the junior game that kept you in it for all this time? Well, it was the excitement of seeing what they were going to do next because they have to understand I played and I probably did everything they thought of doing. And so when it came to it, uh, I used to say, listen, don't give me an excuse. I hate excuses. Just tell me the truth. Let me judge the truth. And so uh, when it came to uh, catching somebody, I didn't want to catch anyone. I didn't want to take them out of the lineup. That that would have hurt the team and the rest of the guys that were trying to do right from wrong. You know. So, uh, But every once in a while you had to set an example and let them know that rules are there for them as well as myself. I I live by the same rules. So if I told them, don't go out the night before a game, I didn't go out the night before a game. You know, so uh, I did, like I said, I had not a lot of rules. Uh, I wasn't the greatest coach for catching on curfews. But if we played Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for instance, Thursday night, I would expect you to be in if you thought that you were going to be ready for a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, probably with a trip included somewhere there. And so, like, if I caught you out Thursday night, then I was disappointed, and um, that's when I might have taken you out of the lineup. But uh, that was, uh, I knew that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a lot of them had girlfriends, and they may have wanted to go to a show or do something different. Uh, you know, to get away from the pressures of the game. I understood that because I did. Killer, when you say you did, a lot of uh, a lot of the times, I'm sure Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, were under Eddie Shore. Um, was it as painful to play under him as many people say? It was really, really difficult. And uh, I've seen so many things that I, I wouldn't make a book about it mainly because I wouldn't want to tarnish his reputation. I did include some in the book, uh, but uh, he was a great man, and he he could have been a great coach. If he didn't have to look after the finances or worry about money, uh, then I kind of think it would have been different, but uh, he had both, and um, the team as well as the expenses, and Sometimes that took precedent with him, but he was very difficult. I mean, you, you don't tie a rope around a goaltender's neck and say, then fall, you know. And uh, so I, I've seen, there. I, I, I use some of the examples that had, that happened to me 
uh, so that people would understand it wasn't a hearsay story. Like, um, I uh, got hit on a Saturday night from behind, cross-checked, and um, uh, we played Sunday afternoon. Well, after the game Saturday night, I said, my back is sore, I, I don't know what's wrong, I'm having trouble breathing. Eddie Shore came in with his personal doctor, and they were over in their office having a drink. And so he came in, he gave me a bear hug. And I could hardly catch my breath. And he said, oh, you're all right. That's how he decided that I didn't have anything around me. So I played. We would travel by train and bus to Quebec City, played the next afternoon, Sunday afternoon. And um, uh, after the game, I went across the street where after we got back to hotel where we could go and have a beer and a sandwich and um, when I got to their side I couldn't catch my breath I went down to my hands and knees so I figured something was wrong I went to the hospital had x-rays well they found out that I had two broken ribs and a cracked third and they said uh, you're out for two to three weeks and so anyway I went back to the hotel and Pat Egan was our coach I said Pat uh, I, I'm out for two to three weeks. I got uh, broken ribs. He went and got Eddie Shore. He came down to the lobby to meet me, and he said um, his first words were, who told you to go to the hospital? And I said, well, I told myself because I said I couldn't breathe, and I figured something was wrong. So now I found out. Anyway, Eddie Shore said there's nothing wrong with you, and I played Tuesday night. So that was one story, and then a quick one about when I had a – Double fracture of the jaw on a game Wednesday night in the playoffs. They couldn't operate. I went to the hospital. I finished the game, by the way, and then uh, went to the hospital after the game. I had a double fracture of the jaw. They said it on Thursday night. I went down to the rink Saturday afternoon. Eddie told me to get on the ice and run into Pat Egan on both sides of my body, hit him with the left shoulder, hit him with the right. He said, uh, you'll be all right. And so I played that night with a double fracture of the jaw that was set Thursday night. So they were two that happened to me. So without other people's stories, that would have been enough. Obviously, you play for Eddie in the minors, and then in the pros, it's, uh, well, that one game, of course, with the Detroit Red Wings, but primarily with the expansion Los Angeles Kings it's for for kids today and fans today Brian Los Angeles has always been in the league what was it like back then i'm sure you're excited as heck for the pro shot but oh my goodness you're going to Los Angeles to play hockey yeah that was uh, it was strange but when we went to camp uh the good part was the coach uh Red Kelly he was just such a super gentleman and uh, one of the politest men I ever met, and I had met him briefly because I had went to Detroit's camp for all oh, four or five years, and so I had met some of the great names in hockey, and Red Kelly being one of them. And so when he was coach, and then uh, it, it just made it easier. You were playing for a guy that was a hockey player and understood the game and didn't get his coaching degree by a book. Uh, like in some today's world. And um, I, everyone tried. They wanted to be there. But when I got to Los Angeles, I wasn't ready for the heat. It was just something different for me. And uh, 
I didn't really enjoy it, and I'm one of the few and probably in the world that ever asked to be sent back because it was just too hot, and um, I I wasn't having fun, and that was the, the extent of it. And so I went back to Springfield and enjoyed it there. At the time, my mom and dad were getting up in age and, and a little bit of poor health. I I wanted to be closer to home, too, so... And all things worked out, but I felt bad because uh, I really liked playing for Red Kelly. That one game for the Detroit Red Wings, Brian, do you remember who your line mates were for your shift? Well, the line I went out with was, uh, yeah, people may remember this name, Gordy Howe and Ted Lindsay. And oh. I went out for one shift with them. And uh, I forget if Dutch Rival at that time, because Alex Avakir was on the second line anyway, and... Uh, I don't know if he broke a lace or whatever, but uh, all I know is that Ted Lindsay came to me. And he says, when we get over the blue line, just get to the net. We'll find you. And so uh, that's what happened. And anyway, it, it was a memorable shift because two of the greatest players in the world were alignment for whether it was be 30 seconds or not. You had one of the greats in Ottawa in junior hockey in Peter Lee, who scored 80 80- won one season in the Ontario Hockey League. Can you can you remember one, Brian, or I mean, obviously, after all the time you spent, maybe we can allow a list here, but the players that really stood out to you that you coached in the Ontario Hockey League? Well, if I went quick, I might be able to get a few more in, but <laughs> I, want to tell you, I want to tell you one story about Peter Lee. He, practice used to be at 4 o'clock till 6 or 10 to 6. Peter Lee would be on at 3.30. Uh, when everyone else left at 10 to 6, Peter Lee was stayed till 7. And we had to go get him weighted pucks. We had to glue two together because he shot one, and that wasn't enough. He wanted the power the, so they could move it. That's why his shot so improved. And so when I think of greatness, uh, there's no greater divider of hard work than Peter Lee. He made himself that good, but I mean... I was lucky to have a Dougie Wilson, a Mike Pekka, Bobby Smith, a Steve Payne, a Corey Locke, a Jimmy Fox. I mean, they're quick names that uh, I'm just going through. Uh, uh, you know, I, if I go back a way long time, Timmy Young was one of the great players that I had. That you know. So anyway, I probably forgot some that are going to be mad at me when they hear this, but that was that, that was a quick parlay of some of the greatness all those players that uh played under you brian they they all talk about uh the famous you've got three options <laughs> what were what were those three options uh well we won't use the, the definitive words <laughs> but they were get the puck out get the puck off the glass and get the puck out so it was a simple solution especially when um, you're whether you're killing a penalty or at the end of the game or whatever the case may be we we used to have fun and i know that there was one fellow that uh, i just loved as a player sean donovan and i'll never forget the one story that uh, you never know what you're going to say. I mean, you can talk to some coaches. All of a sudden, when you go in the room and you're uh, giving them hang a little bit, 
you don't rehearse something. You just go in and it comes off. And my style was I, I always hit somebody else, whether it was one or two guys, and then get the guy I really wanted. And I'll never forget the one time we're in Niagara Falls, and um, it was that small rink, and Sean Donovan had great speed. And we're in our end, and next thing you know, he'd start breaking out while they couldn't get him the puck, and he'd get out to the red line. Then he'd start coming back into our end. Then he'd get the puck in our end, and then, as it turned out, he was with Mike Peck on a line, and it was our best line. But the first period, we're down 3-1, to one, and they were on for two goals against both the same way, giving the puck to Donovan when he was coming back to our end and losing the puck. And so I'll never forget walking the room, gave couple of guys a little bit of hang and then went to Donovan and he used to just look at he never said a word he just said most super kid you can think of he just looked at me and I said Donovan I don't know if you're playing right wing for me or left wing for them and I well the rest of the team just broke up laughing Mike Pecker was sitting beside him and I'll never forget Mike Pecker just almost left the seat and so anyway I just left the room and left them all in that way and uh, they were it was just comical because that was the end of it and we went out and it was the next period uh, we just just took it to them and end up winning the game pretty big and Peck and Donovan dominated the game and so, like I, I said many a time, uh, it wasn't win one for the Gipper that was the, the great speeches. Uh, I think humor had a lot to do with some of our serious talks in the dressing room. Time is uh, is cruel sometimes, and it, it marches on and waits for no man and all of those uh, all of those sayings that come along with it. Obviously, Brian, you're still involved in the game, and you're still involved with the Ottawa 67s, but stepping away from your coaching duties uh, after obviously establishing the records that you established, winning the championships that you won, and, and meeting and, and teaching all of these players. How tough was it for you? It was tough because, uh, the, you know, uh, I probably would have tried to stay forever, but I did say at one time to Jeff Hunt, you know, it's tough on the kids because they're coming here, and we had a new influx of coaches and when you think of the great new coaches, uh, like, you know, there was a Tommy Webster and, you know, uh, they won in Windsor. And then you had Mark and Dale Hunter in London. And you had so many good young coaches coming, even the kid Kitchener that end up coaching out West now that you had. There were so many young coaches that were coming along that I said, you know, they kids talk. And so a kid gets drafted by Ottawa. And all of a sudden he talks to a guy, for instance, in London, and he says, uh, who's, who, oh, you got drafted by London. Oh, you're going to, uh, Dale Hunter. Yeah, he just left the National Hockey League. Uh, oh, you're going to Ottawa. Uh, you're with that old guy that's been there 30 years. <laughs> and so I always said I, I didn't want to be putting the kids under the gun of coming in with an old guy who might have lost touch with, some of today's reality. So uh, I think it was that statement that helped Jeff make the decision along with myself that um, we'll get by. And I'll never forget when uh, Don Cherry said, don't do it. I had said, okay, I'm going to retire, but I'll let everyone know, retire in a year in advance. Don said, don't do it. And I said, well, the only reason I'm doing it 
is because the press guys around Ontario were so good to me that I think it's only fair that if they know that it's my last year around the league and around their rink, if they want to do an interview, fine. If they don't, that's fine too. But I didn't want to have them try to search me down to get my final thoughts about coaching. So I did it for a couple of reasons. One, because of my age and the disparity between kids and me, and also uh, the the people that followed the team, broadcast the team, or wrote for the team, to give them a chance that if they had any questions, uh, I'd try to answer them when I had the time there. Throughout the year, Brian, Mike and I always talk during an intermission, you know, wondering if the coach is going into the room to, as we say, you know, peel some paint off the wall to spark something under his team. A lot of players knew immediately when you were mad at them because you were very vocal about it. But you also said that after you made your point, then it was all forgotten. And you used, you mentioned you used a lot of humor to get your point across from comparing uh, <laughs> a player as a dog humping a pumpkin to asking yeah. a player who recently got sent back from the NHL if he left his brain in San Jose. Where did the humor aspect come into your coaching? Well, I don't know. I kind of think it. Uh, I As a kid, uh, they said uh, I was a happy kid, always giggling. Uh, my nickname actually growing up was Gig Gilray, shortened from Giggy. And so I was giggy, I was giggles, giggy, gig, uh, before killer. And um, so I, I always had uh, a good sense of humor. I think it came from my dad, because I'll never forget sitting at the table, and I was only young, and uh, my uncle came in, and he wasn't, uh, he had had some shell shock from the war, and um, he had went out on his own and bought a pair of pants, but they were come up fairly high on his chest and uh, you know and so anyway he came down put them on he came down he says well jack what do you think of this i don't need you to pick a pair of pants what do you think of this and my dad said oh they look a little tight in the chest well at the time i didn't think you know i didn't laugh because uh, i wasn't sure then all of a sudden i later on thought a little tight in the chest when did you ever hear a pair of pants being tight in the chest my dad had a sense of humor, and I guess I got some of it from him and some of from some of the fellows that when we played for Haiti Shore. The name Hunter has come up a couple of times in our chat already today, Brian. And uh, obviously, Mark and Dale have something going in London that fans of 19 other teams love to hate. And of course, everybody loves it in London. Say what you want about the team and being everybody's favorite uh target i guess in the ohl there is a tremendous amount of success happening right now in that city do you think dale can touch your record for coaching wins if he stays healthy and if he uh you know it, it's health okay i had a few setbacks with my health and uh, who knows dale may all of a sudden say uh one day or another uh the travel is just a little bit tough but as long as you're having fun and um, enjoying it, and as long as the kids are uh, behaving and doing and listening, then uh, he could go on for a lot of years. He's got a, a great partner in Mark, uh, who I always considered, and I've always said, 
no one will outwork Mark Hunter. Whether it was him traveling down to get inroads into the United States for some of those players that he found or somewhere else, no one will outwork him. Uh, I'll never forget some of the stories when, uh, when I was in the league and Mark Hunter would call me at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, he'd wake me up. And but he had already been out in the field for a couple hours. I mean that was the way he was, and so nothing's changed. He gets up and he works, and uh, with Dale they've got a great uh, partnership, and that all stems from their dad Dick, who was unbelievable when it came to uh, being the toughest hunter of all. Dick was, but uh, he instilled in them hard work, and uh, that's what they do. Brian, your number one thing when it came to coaching was move the puck. If someone's further up the ice than you, you move the puck to them. Um, did you actually, in Peterborough, put your forward line on the blue line for the entire game because Peterborough was playing so defensive? Not the entire game, and I'll tell you what happened. They had come out and said, uh, we're going to show them how we're going to stop that big line of theirs, which is Bobby Smith, Steve Payne, Timmy Higgins. And I had a funny feeling they were just going to shadow and uh, – even play tighter than they usually did, you know. So anyway, I said to them, if they do this, I told Steve Payne and Timmy Higgins, the two wingers, just go stand at the blue line and let those wingers stand, stay out of the way. Just get right against the boards and let the wingers stay with you. (laughs) So then all of a sudden I said, Bobby, you go wherever you want and let Keith Acton go wherever he wants. If he wants to shout at you, go and stand against the wall and just stay there. Who cares? Then we had Steve Maringer and Jeff Geiger on the blue line. Well, one thing about Steve Maringer, he could really skate and move. And anyway, so now we win the face-off. They go into, our wingers broke out. They went into this shadow. They just moved the guys and stayed right with them. So I told our defense, just pass the puck back and forth to yourselves. So the referee blew the whistle, and I said, long as they advance the puck, he said they didn't advance it. I said, yeah, okay. So we won the face-off again, and I told our defense, make sure that when you get the puck, you skate back three strides and then advance the puck, and then you pass it to your defense. So here they are. They got their two defensemen on their blue line with their two wingers and our two forwards. And I told Bobby Smith, just go to the wall. So we just passed the puck back and forth for to Jeff Geiger and Steve Maringer for eight minutes. And the, some of the fans started booing and yelling at me. So I turned around to the fans and I said, if they want to play hockey, we'll go up and down the ice with anyone. But they're going to have to come out of that silliness that they're doing. I said, do you think that's hockey? So they're all talking to fans. <laughs> Finally, Steve Marincher took the puck. Then Gary Green thought it was a good idea to have his defense go and chase our two defense. Well, what happened was Steve Marincher got around one of their defense and had a breakaway. and But the goaltender stopped it. Anyway, froze the puck. Anyway, I changed the line and then we went back. Eight minutes we did that, and then the rest of the game was uh, up and down the ice. Matter of fact, I think the game ended in a tie. <laughs> <laughs> what was the Pete's bench doing as that was happening? Well, they were all yelling at us. 
And our team's like I was yelling back, tell them to play hockey. Is that game? Shadow, shadow. You know, Christ almighty. That wasn't hockey. Go and shadow somebody. These kids are in the game. They're trying to improve. What are they, what are they teaching them? How to uh, stand still on a blue line and put your arms around a guy? Anyway, uh, the game ended and Gary Green and I became friends anyway. We were after <laughs> Keller, <laughs> that Peterborough barn back in the day, I'm sure, wasn't a very nice place to go as a member of the 67s. What was the most hostile environment on the road you experienced? Of, of just Peterborough ourselves or anywhere? No, just across the OHL. Well, when Burt Templeton had a team in Hamilton, matter of fact, they won the Memorial Cup that year. That was a tough rink. They had... No, that was a Dale McCourt year, maybe before your time, but Dale McCourt years. But they had about, oh, I don't know how many guys, uh, uh, tough guys, physical guys, plus they had talent guys. And um, they uh, they made it a, a tough rank to play. And besides that, it was the Hamilton Forum where they had those steel girders along uh, the rink boards they had a little bit of padding on them, but that didn't really protect you. And I know because that's where I played junior. So uh, that was the, probably the most intimidating rink that you could be in. What do you think of the game today, Brian? Well, I'm, I'm getting tired of uh, analytics. Uh, when I hear somebody saying, uh, well, he didn't do this, but he doesn't do this enough. Uh, I understand uh, if you can use analytics to go and scout, then you're better than I. Because if I go to a rink, I don't want to have to pick up a book and say, oh, this is the guy I should draft. I want to go and take a look and see who's uh, the best skater, who's the fastest skater, who works the hardest, who's a physical player, who's not scared, who's who's good with the puck. I want to see all those little intangible things. And uh, when I think that when I hear some of these guys that say that they can skip by a book and analytics, uh, he tells you they can't do this. Well, don't tell me what he can't do. Teach him to do those things. But take the guy that's talented enough and wants to be a hockey player. So, uh I, I enjoy going to rinks. I enjoy scouting. But when I think of some of the things and the trap, uh, what does the trap teach you that you can sit back and you, you, you're not really skating hard? I mean, you could play trap all night and not be tired. Well, at the end of the game, what have you learned? You've learned to stay near your check and don't skate. <laughs> no, some of the things that uh, get me in the game – uh, are those the analytics side much more prominent or prominent now? But in when you were just the general manager of the team, was there ever any arguments with your scouts because of that? Or did you ever have any analytical thinking scouts, and you were more of the? No, eye we test never guy? had any. Uh, that was never a word in ours. No. Like you know, the same as a, a guy in the old days used to go in work the corners, 
and then when somebody came out with that's a quiet zone and then somebody else when you used to get a player and you say well he works both ends of the rink well uh, then they came out with oh it's a 200 foot rink well all they're just changing the words or he's good in this zone he's good in that zone well uh, in other words he four checks and he back checks i mean all they've done is change the wording to suit their own uh, I don't know what they're suiting, but it just bothered me to think of uh, this uh, word game that some of these coaches use instead of just letting the kids go out and play a 200-foot game, both ends and how hard you can go, and uh, who wants to puck the most. A couple of names that came up near the beginning of our conversation today, along with Ann Murray, that I said we have to come back to, and, and they've come up again, too. Don Cherry, Bob Yore. What's your relationship like with those two men? Well, I played with Don, and he wasn't the greatest player in the world, but all he wanted to do was win. If we scored eight goals, he didn't get a point. He was as happy in the dressing room as the guy who got a hat trick because we won. When it came to physical play, Don was physical. He protected our goalie. He won the battles in the corner and the sideboards. You know, so uh, he was just a guy that you wanted on your team. And Bobby Orr, uh, Bobby Orr was just, uh, Don and I argue about this, and I'm not really knowing who's right or wrong. I was always a Gordie Howe fan. He was a Bobby Orr fan as the greatest player in the world and then Gretzky came along and so uh, I think you put the three of them in a hat and you'd be happy to have either one any one of them but uh, Bobby Orr's always a gentleman and um, he was just so great and so humble and when we did uh, Bobby Orr when we had the strike in hockey down in Springfield Bobby Orr came down and gave us a, a little bit of a talk Luckily, I got to meet Bobby again when we were doing uh, some of the uh, prospect games with Don. And he was always the same. He was a gentleman, and everyone respected him, and um, he's just a super guy to be around. So when I think that as friends go, I was lucky enough to have friends, Bobby Orr, Don Cherry, and, and Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky. Of all the years you coached in Ottawa, Brian, what do you think was your best team? Hmm. I don't know. I would. You'd have to ask players sometimes. Said, did they have fun? I know that um, the, you know, certain years we won and we weren't, according to some experts, we weren't the best team. But I had some pretty good teams that didn't make it, and. Um, so whether I was a bad coach those years and a good coach others, I I don't know. I don't think coaches, uh, we may contribute in a small way to winning and losing, but players win, players lose. And I've always given the credit to players for any success we had. So uh, we had some good years, and that means I had a lot of players that played extremely well. And um, I can be... As a coach and as now a retired ex-coach, I can be thankful I had so many players that worked hard for me 
and probably it was their hard work that uh, gained me some of the respect that I have today. I thought for sure you were going to say the 84 team that beat Lemieux and Laval in Kitchener and then smashed the Rangers in the final. Well, that was a big one for us because we had two injuries before the game. Brad Shaw and Mark Patterson that weren't supposed to play. And uh, Brad threw away the the shield piece that he they put on to protect the badly swollen eye. And Mark Patterson threw away crutches and had to squeeze his foot into somebody else's boot. So that was a, a great year for us. But winning the championship and getting there, and I remember Tom Barrett, who was uh, the late Tom Barrett, what a super gentleman and what a great job he did that year. And I guess if we hadn't won it, they would have won it, and it would have been fitting because he did such a great job. But uh, as it turned out, a couple of fate goals intervened and got us the win. And uh, that year, uh, you know, there's so many players uh, did so much for us that uh, when I think back, it was no coaching decision that I made. It was the players' decisions that they made that won it. You mentioned off the air, Brian, the respect you have for uh, the, the city of Kitchener, the fan base, uh, that OHL organization. And you've mentioned a, a couple of the names, of course, with Tom Barrett and Joe McDonnell's name has come up. What is it about Kitchener that always uh, that earned your respect? Well, I just love the rink. It was always one of the clean, if not the cleanest rank in the league. It was always just a place that you had a lot of respect for. And the fans, no matter if it was a good year or a tougher year, the fans supported their team. And they always said, right back to the days I remember when Joe Crozier was there and others, you know, but uh, Orville Tessier was there. And when I think back, uh, you had a great mayor who the city of Kitchener got behind in an awful lot of ways. I was there the, the night they honored uh, Paul Coffey. Uh, what a tremendous individual he was and is. And uh, I just think what they did and always did for their players and past people, like, uh, the, the respect everybody got. And so when you think back, uh, that the, the just I think it comes down to the city, the fans. The city were behind everything they did, whether it was the the rank they needed this or the equipment, whatever they needed, they got. And um, the fans were always supportive of it, and uh, they always had respect around the league, and even in uh, when we used to go to meetings, uh, Kitchener were well represented by their. Uh, management team was there any place you didn't like going you talked about how you always enjoyed the bus rides because you got to see the beautiful province of ontario well i did i i used to say that i'm i'm being paid uh, to go and see how great our province is like you, all you have to do is take a look around when you drive from ottawa to sault st marie the the sites uh, the lakes the rivers uh, cheapers like uh, I think and then you go the other way up to Windsor and then over to Sarnia then up around the north you know I've been to Thunder Bay and everywhere else and boy when you think of Ontario I just think of greatness but the, uh, in the old days I, I didn't really look forward to going to Sioux 
that was a long trip. But then later on, when we got North Bay and Sudbury and then in Sioux, it shortened the trip because you got three games out of it. So that took away that. And then it was, you get to, you know, then they got Barry, well, Barry always in. I remember playing against Barry when I was in Hamilton, but then Owen Sound came in, and then Guelph came back into the league. Like, you know, we were always getting different places at Windsor, and then, like, Windsor used to have the old Windsor Bulldogs. Then they came to Hamilton, that's where I joined them, and then Windsor got back in, and then Sarnia. So, like, to see the whole province, there was no place I didn't want to go, except a couple of the rinks were a little bit in need of repair, but... uh People got those rinks looked after, too. Just as I'm listening to you talk about this beautiful province and all of the teams and some of the team movement, I can't help but think of the commissioner of this Ontario Hockey League, and I think that's another name I should just throw out to you, David Branch. The greatest guy in the world. And I'll tell you, uh, the National League would have been smart. I'm not for Gary Bettman. Gary Bettman, I'm a Gary Bettman man. He's kept, kept peace in the National League. But Dave Branch, I think, could have been a great, not to go daily, but Dave Branch could have been every bit as good in that situation. He would have worked with everybody, but we were lucky that we were able to hold on to Dave Branch. At one time, we had a couple other commissioners, and I, I liked one or two of them, and a couple others uh, I didn't, but... When we got Dave Branch, he has steered us clear of so many potholes, so many times that we've had disruptions, and Dave has just guided us around and looked after it and kept us out of the courts and kept us going. And whatever he's done, it's always been improvement for the kids. And by the way, Dave Branch has an assistant in Ted Baker that is equally like a day branch. He thinks the same, and they're the ones that are guiding us. And so when you think of uh, the kids being in good hands, the kids are in good hands because he's always looking out the safety first, what's good. And, uh, uh, you know, Dave is conscious of uh, every team. Not He doesn't pick on one. He picked on us a couple of times. And here I thought I was his good friend, but <laughs> he, uh, no, no, he's, uh, what he has done, he has done for the league. And, um, I will tell you, and I said this, uh, and maybe I shouldn't even say it, but I'll say it because I thought of it. I told Jeff Hunt, I said, if Dave Branch ever retires, sell your franchise because he is the guy that's kept us out of the courts and on the ice. We could probably run down a whole list of names and spend three hours on this podcast, Taylor. <laughs> but um, what was Jim Ralph like? I know he lived with you for some time. Jimmy Ralph was just one of those guys that um, funny from day one, uh, character in the dressing room. But uh, he didn't get enough credit for being a good goalie. He was a good goalie, and uh, now he's great on color. And uh, I just uh, think the world of him, and when he he's with Joe Bowen, and I like it, and I know he'd like to be a little bit more humorous, but I don't think he wants to uh, overstep his uh, job 
with Joe and getting the wrong side. So he just uh, stays in the background, does a job. But he is a tremendously funny guy. And he used to, him and Sean Simpson, I've been on the bus when we lost a game. You get on and, you know, you're a little bit down or a little bit mad, whatever the case may be. And uh, him and Simpson come up and say, uh, can we have the mic? Yeah, go ahead. So they'd entertain, entertain the, the team for if it's a three-hour trip or a four-hour trip or a two-hour trip. They'd entertain. It's almost like, uh, oh, let's go for a drive and keep going somewhere, you know. And uh, the the kids sort of forgot about the game. And did we lose? Like I used to say to Bert O'Brien, my assistant coach many times, did we lose or did we win? You know, because uh, Ralph and Simpson had brought them out of their seats with humor and imitations and everything else. Those are the sounds, Brian, of a seasoned coach. Uh, Don Cameron, who did Kitchener Rangers play-by-play for five decades. Uh, and was, he's super guy, too. Wasn't he something? He was. I enjoyed Donnie. And any time, like, you know, every once in a while you get to a rink, and I don't want to interrupt, but any time you got to rink, and sometimes you get in just at the last moment or whatever, but if somebody said Donnie Cameron wanted you for an interview, I made sure to go there before I talked to my team because he was one guy that had the respect of everyone around the league. And he often said that after a bad loss, you'd get on that bus and, you know, the players would have these long faces, but he said, you know what, they're going to wake up tomorrow morning and realize that the sun came up again. Kind of like what you're saying with after a bad loss, it doesn't matter if you had those guys doing the entertaining. And I think that comes with experience in this league to understand that. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing. It's, I mean, the, the kids feel bad enough. I mean, uh, you don't want to go and pinpoint, like, did we lose because of one bad play? Or did we lose because we had a bad goal? Or did we lose because the whole team had a bad day? I mean, I've been on the bus when we've had a bad game as a team. Then you're mad at everyone. Then it's a little tougher to get over. But every once in a while, no kid wants to make a mistake. You know, nobody wants to be uh, the brunt of a, uh, the the loss. So, And you can't pinpoint it to one person. Uh, if we had played better throughout the game, you'd have been better for it. So uh, I'll never forget, and I'll just use one comparison Monday we were playing a game in Toronto. George Armstrong had that great Toronto Marley team. And I had said to our team, because we had won in London the night before, on a, early in the season, might have been the first or second week, I said, guys, Toronto, we know we're going to be there. If you beat them today, it's a four-point game. It just gives you a little bit of leeway down the road. We scored the first goal. They got the next 13. <laughs> and that's the way the game ended. Anyway... It was a disappointment, embarrassment, and whatever you want to say. But we had went on. We had won Friday and lost Saturday afternoon. Okay, so we're 500 right now. We're on our way up to Sudbury. Anyway, uh, we got out in Young Street. And all of a sudden, I just turned and I said, uh, that game's over. And I looked for the closest uh, retail store and uh, went to that retail store to make the trip to Sudbury a little bit easier. <laughs> uh, retail, st- re- retail store killer? That's right. It was a retail store. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I said, uh, 
the limits won, but anyway, it was just the idea that uh, who no one wants to be embarrassed on the ice. They didn't want to be embarrassed, and so it was over, and let's forget it and uh, start looking forward to the next game. That story bleeds great into my next question, Killer, where a lot of the players that you had, if you talk to them now, they say that you were a huge factor in the man they become. Very, It's always the man they become, not the player they become. One player's father said to you, I delivered you a boy and you're giving me back a man. How much were you, or did you view yourself as more so a father figure and somebody who was helping raise the man versus how much you were helping coach the player? Well, I, I, I tried to do both. I tried to make a better player out of them. And I also let them know respect and uh, grow up. And um, like I, I've said in the book, we cleaned our own bus. And I would go and check it before to make sure that everything was off the floor. Um, we cleaned our own dressings on the road. I would check it before we left to make sure that room was clean. I didn't want them to think that the Ottawa 67s or this. We went to a restaurant. We thanked the chef. We thanked the waitresses. We brought our tables to an area where they could, or our dishes to an area where they could get them. If that was the case, bring your dirties up or whatever. And but uh, it was just like a little bit of respect. Don't wear a hat in a a restaurant. Um, my line was, uh, "We're not expecting rain through that roof, so get that hat off." And uh, so. Uh, I just, uh, it was just a growing up process that I tried to follow. And uh, at the end, um, I think that the players uh, respected it. It just became natural to them uh, in their uh, second and third or fourth year, for that matter. And uh, anyone that didn't follow the rules quickly adhered to them by the other players as well as myself. Your name is deservedly synonymous with the Ontario Hockey League. It's the stuff of legend. But you did have that two-year stint in the NHL, and not a bad place to be with the dynastic New York Islanders under Al Arbor. What did you learn from him as a coach? Well, I I said, although they didn't renew my contract the next year, there was a couple of minor incidents that happened that I I spoke up and, uh, you know... uh, went against uh, the majority uh, in a defense of a player or two and um, but that's why I always was I I was outspoken and I was loud and um, I guess that's why I was the spokesman for Springfield when we had the problem but when I was in New York it was like getting a refresher course in coaching because Al Arbor was a very positive person and then you're with some of the greatest names in the game. They had just won four Stanley Cups. I mean, Danny Potvat, Trotsche, Bossier, Gillies. I mean, Billy Smith, like, no, on and on. Uh, so, uh, and they were just so polite and so good that it was easy to come back and try to tell these kids, these are the greatest names in the game, and uh, this is what they were like. And um, so I, I followed, it was just a, a pattern, and I raised the bar a little bit because of what I learned from Al Arbor and the New York Islanders. And so uh, when it came time, if there was ever something that I've missed or tent 
tantrum, temper tantrums. Uh, I sort of uh, let them have their way and then corrected it quickly uh, before it got out of hand. And so uh, I learned from Al Arbor and um, uh, I learned from a lot of people. I learned from Red Kelly. I learned from Johnny McClellan. I learned from Eddie Shore. And some good, some bad, but uh, I learned. And when I was in New York Islanders, I learned from a bunch. Farwell, you can maybe correct me here if I'm wrong, but I believe, Brian, you are the third Hockey Hall of Famer we've had on this podcast following Al McGinnis and the late Dale Howard. Chuck, what was it like getting that call? Well, it was just, I didn't realize it. I was down at City Hall. They had been honoring me down at City Hall that day. And someone came, because I never, I never had a, a cell phone Still don't. I don't have a computer either, by by the way, and I don't do analytics, so I guess I'm far behind. <laughs> uh, I was down at City Hall, and this other fellow uh, connected with the club brought over. He says, Brian, someone's trying to get you from Toronto, and you better take it. And it was Jimmy Gregory. And uh, I, had, I had known Jimmy Gregory since the days when Toronto Marley's Frank Bonello and Jimmy Gregory we're running the Marlies. And so, yes, Jimmy, what, what's wrong? And uh, he, he told me that I was inducted in the Hall of Fame, the Hall called, and I didn't even know I was up for it. And um, I couldn't believe it. And then he said, you can't say nothing uh, because uh, it's not going to be announced till 5 o'clock. And it, this was at 2 o'clock. And I was down at City Hall, and all the press are around me because... They were down covering this event at City Hall that the city were honoring me. And so uh, I had to, I didn't lie because I told the kids I, I never lied. I said, uh, guys, uh, I can say something, but you can't use it till 5 o'clock. I said, uh, they said, what was it? And I had to tell them I've been inducted in the Hall of Fame. But I said, we can't say anything till 5 o'clock because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Anyway, um, that's the way it was, and uh, then they called officially at 5 to to let me know, and uh, it's just something when you think about it uh, as a junior coach uh, going into the Hall of Fame. Boy, I, I'm representing junior hockey, uh, Dave Branch and all the rest, and that's who I felt I was representing. It occurs to me as we're having these conversations today, we've got 20 years as a player, 30-plus as a coach, another decade and change, general manager, special consultant, etc. This is a lifetime, obviously, in, in hockey, Brian, and we didn't even start at the real the beginning of it. How did it all start? Was there ever any uh, doubt that you would end up in this game? No, uh, not in my mind. I'm, I remember when, they, uh, when I was only a little guy, I think it's in one of the books. They did two books on me. And I'm not sure if they went back to when I was a little guy, but when I was four years old, I got a pair of skates and uh, those double, double rudders, uh, as they were in the old days. But there was a family, a Duncan family, down at the bottom of our street, about six houses away. And they used to have a rink, an outdoor rink. And my dad would take me down, and it'd stick me in a corner. Now the bigger guys would skate around. They'd just sort of skate around me, and I'd have my own little stick in this little 
pond, this little corner and play around and uh, had my fun. But I learned how to skate, learned how to play. And um, then as I grew up, I I got, I was a pretty good junior. And uh, then when I got to be 16, I was playing and our team got eliminated. And uh, this team, the Monteguards here in town, and the players got eliminated, brought from Majidomas, which are a senior team, were going to the playoffs, and they were allowed to pick up a junior, and they picked me up. So I was, well, 17, and I was playing against seniors in a senior league. And, um, boy, that was a, a rude awakening because they were all men and tough men. Anyway, I, I improved, and then I went back to junior the next year to two years in Hamilton. But... Uh, I learned, and I'll never forget when I, I was uh, 16. This isn't for kids about school. Uh, you may want to take this part out, but when I was 16, uh, we had a Lisger team, and as a junior in Lisger, I made the senior team. Well, and the next year I'm back to hockey for grade 11, and um, they built a gym on the rink. So I said, where's the... Uh, where are we playing hockey this year? And they said, there's no hockey program this year. Lisger are out because we've got uh, the gym on the rink, no rink. Oh, so I went in, put my books in the locker. My dad had a Photoshop. I went up. I said, I just quit school. I'm going to be a hockey player. Trigonometry, geometry, and al- algebra aren't going to do it for me. And I said, um, so I can work here. You haven't replaced me. I worked there all summer. And I said, um, I'll just uh, skate every day and work here and work, do whatever I have to and get my games in. And um, I did. My dad used to let me. I'd run down to a rink. There was a, a rink, St. Luke's Park. Oh, it was about a mile away, maybe more. I'd run down every afternoon at about one thirty till about 3. Then I'd run back and then do my uh, pickups and then go back in and do my developing and printing and everything else for our Photoshop. But he let me have that. And then if I had a game that night, then whoever I was playing for, I was playing. But then, so hockey was always, I was going to be a hockey player from day one and not really a good student. (laughs) Excuse me. It wasn't long after, uh, you got married that you had your son, Billy, followed by two daughters. Did your parenting style mirror your coaching style? Uh, no, I just left him alone. If uh, my son was going to be a hockey player, he'd have to uh, do it on his own because I didn't want to push. I've heard others push and everything else, and I, I wanted him to have the same amount of fun I did. And if hockey's in it, good. And if something else in it, Good. He was a good hockey player, but he wasn't. Uh, he didn't have the temperament uh, to go on. Sometimes you have to have that little nutsy brain that says, uh, "No matter what, I'm going to do it." And uh, he was a little bit more sensible than I was. <laughs> what do you do to keep busy these days, Brian? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, through the summer, I w- it was great because I golf three times a week, but. Now, I was hoping that I used to be able to scout two and three times a week, sometimes Saturday afternoon, but uh, Monday and then sometimes Saturday night and that sort of stuff. 
uh, and the occasional odd game, you know, in the midweek. But uh, with no hockey this year, it's um, just walk the dog twice a day and um, uh, watch NFL football and tape another game and uh, tape some mystery programs. I was always big on uh, Agatha Christie, Poirot and Miss Marple and all that. Uh, so I taped a lot of them, and I got the VCR that we can use the old style and have some of them. So that's how I fill, fill my day. You've mentioned the name Bert O'Brien. He was your assistant coach for, I think, over 18 years or so. Yeah, um, he was. He was one of uh, a group of guys that rode the bus and were around you all the time with Bert. There was Tank, Stump, and Bobby. What was oh, it like yeah. having those guys around you all the time? We had a great group, and they all had their own jobs. And you never had to, you never had to tell them twice what their job was. And uh, uh, so one had, one might have been to get the food after. One was to make sure the cooler was packed along with that water and pop <laughs> and cold. Uh, there was a front cooler and a back cooler, and their job was to make sure they didn't <laughs> switch them. <laughs> and uh, the meals and and Bert uh, Bert's job was to to look after me. <laughs> what was in that front cooler? Uh, that front cooler had a lot of uh, product. <laughs> <laughs> a couple exports. Oh uh, yeah, we uh, in the old days it was uh, you know you could have a couple and fine. Then you know it was today's world uh, that uh, they didn't feel it was the right image, and so I can understand it. And that was another reason why it was easier adjustment for me. It's no longer on buses, same as cigars. So I did get out at the right time. I got one more quick one here, if you don't mind, Farwell. At no, the I don't book, mind. The book in, book in question here, it obviously talks about how much or how great of a storyteller killer is, and I think we all just experienced that. But it ends with Brian saying, did I tell you the one about when Stump fell asleep under the seats of the bus? <laughs> and it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger there, so I'm hoping that uh, Killer can extend the book and tell us when Stump fell asleep under the seats of the bus. Uh, well, uh, I guess it was, we were loading it, and um, uh, maybe he had to wait for some of the buses to come, and it might have been exhaustion, or it could have been other things. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. He was just sort of relaxed. Did he lose his teeth? Uh, that was another story. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so many stories about Stump all what of a, a sudden. Way to add oh yeah, that was a a story, and then there was another story about uh, Tank, and uh, uh, he had uh, his teeth were in a glass, and somehow um, uh, they gave it, the fella found them when they were cleaning the room, gave them to me before I left. So anyway, I never told Tank, so I made made him do the game without them. And uh, we said, well, we'll call the hotel. They're not their Tank. And so I let him suffer on the bus. And finally, it was about an hour out of uh, Sudbury. I said, oh, Tank, what's this I got in my pocket? And I gave him <laughs> gave his, his teeth. So anyway, yeah, we we used to have our uh, our fun front and back on the bus. <laughs>
Great stuff and great stories. Brian, thank you again so much for doing this with us. Uh, you're welcome, guys. Good luck. Thank you. Stay Thanks, well. Taylor. Much appreciated. Okay, thanks. Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.